Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Once again, I shall say, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I am happy to be back. Thank you guys for all the support. You know, I'm looking at the numbers. You've been hitting those archives up. Thank you. I appreciate each and every last one of you. And so there have been some changes going on um, on my end. Um, I didn't do a show last Sunday. And, you know, usually when I'm not going to do a show, you know, I'll put some information up, but I didn't last Sunday. Well, you know, before I get into why, you know, today's show, you know, I'm going to be talking about paradigm shifts, new beginnings. And, you know, um, this is, I'm going to talk about it from a number of different um, topics, from a number of different perspectives, of course. But before I get started, maybe I should define paradigm shift. Now, there's a scientific definition for that. And I'm not necessarily coming from that particular perspective, right? And so, you know, here, and if you want to look up yourself on Urban Dictionary, um, it says here that a paradigm shift is a set of assumptions, concepts, values, and practices that constitutes a way of viewing reality for the community that shares them, especially in an intellectual discipline. And again, another definition, a change of condition, idea, status, et cetera. And so, you know, there are a number of different places in which, you know, you can look up some definitions. And, you know, I'm looking at this more from a sociological standpoint. So, you know, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page before I move forward with the podcast. But again, thank you. I appreciate each and every last one of you guys because, you know, this has been a journey. You know, we've been doing this podcast for five years, and I've had a number of wonderful people that have, you know, joined me as co-hosts, you know, guest hosts, um, had their own shows on here, and, you know, each and every last one of you, thank you because, you know, this journey here, you know, has prepared me for where I am now and, you know, the path that I'm currently on. And like I said, you know, when I first came back on Valentine's Day of this year and I was telling you guys how great I was feeling and the different changes that were happening, and, you know, from that day on, it's it's gotten even better, if you will. You know, I'm working on a few very important projects, and I can't talk about them yet, but... When when it does come out and I put it out there, man, I'm just, like I said, I'm proud. I'm very proud and happy of the work that I've done. And for those of you who've been listening to this show from the very first show in 2011, you know, we've done a lot of growing. And I've talked about that on how I've grown and, you know, I feel more empowered, enlightened, and, you know, I've made changes myself. There were some viewpoints and you know um, that I had then that have changed dramatically now. 
in some cases, you know, I was just wrong. And, hey, I get that, and I understand that, and I accept it. And there is no shame in being wrong. You know, I go back, I correct it, I move forward. In other areas, I've grown. So not only do I still have the same standpoint or the same perception, but it's grown even stronger because I've gone out to educate myself even more about that particular topic or or what have you or philosophy, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, I've been able to add more to it, which just strengthens my argument. And, you know, this is what I've been challenging you guys to do from day one. I want you to go out. I want you to do the research. I want you to challenge other people, but don't back down when you're challenged. You know, that's one thing that, I, you know, I've said from the very beginning. And I know sometimes people are like, well, why is she posting that? And it has, you know, it's, it's the total antipathy to what we're talking about and what we believe. And my stance on that always has been, it still is now, and will remain to be. You need to understand the argument from the other person's perspective. You need to read and understand what they are being taught and where they're coming from. Because, again, you know, back way back when, um, you know, Many of us, you know, we've gone through these different stages of grief, you know, in our lives for a number of different reasons. But some of you all are still kind of stuck on anger and denial. And um, some of you all are stuck on bargaining. But, you know, we'll get back to that. You know, I believe one of the most um, profound things I've said this year was I was referencing, you know, what was happening in the rich, white, elitist community. And I said on the show, I said, you know, how much, you know, I'm loving the news. Now, I've always been a political junkie. I've always, you know, watched the news and read the news. And he used to trip some of my teachers out, you know, because here's this 10, 11-year-old talking about what she read, you know, in the editorial section of the newspaper. And I remember all of this. We had Mike Royko, Thomas Sowell, and, you know, so I've been reading a lot of these people for years. And my teachers, they would just sit there and they would have a conversation with me, and it was just interesting. I remember in high school, you know, I had this teacher, Mr. O'Connor, and this guy was great, right? And it was just interesting because, you know, I was I would talk about what was happening over in the Gaza Strip. You know, they were having the same problems over there in Israel that they're having now. You know, they want to call themselves the Middle East, but you're Africa. That's Africa. But anyway, um, <laughs> let's not start that today. But, you know, reading, guys, reading, read, 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 read. Get this knowledge under your belt. Empower yourself. Enlighten yourself, you know, and and it's very, very important that you do that. So, anyway, before I get off into this even more, I want to tell you guys what happened, you know. Um, so, basically, um, something happened in my family, and it just felt like, the earth shook underneath all of us um, from this, you know, um, 
uh, this incident, right? So, you know, and again, I want to send my condolences to the people of Ecuador and Japan, as well as other places that have had, you know, catastrophes. They've had some major earthquakes and aftershocks. And, you know, I definitely want to make sure that we acknowledge, you know, what's been happening, you know, around the world with some of these, you know, again, catastrophes that people are experiencing. Um, But, you know, it felt like the earth shook, like we had an earthquake in our family. And what happened is um, the matriarch died. So, um, you know, it's just interesting. Um, you know, I had we had to, you know, we as a family, um, we had to bury Mama. You know, we laid our grandmother to rest. And um, we, you know, that took place this past Friday. And so, um, yeah, you know, we had to let go. And, um, you know, what I find so interesting about it is that, you know, at the funeral itself, you know, um, you know, didn't really cry, a couple of tears here and there. And, you know, my my main focus was to be there and be strong for my mother as well as the rest of the family. So, you know, I was there to kind of oversee and, you know, make sure that, you know, she was okay, you know, and... um you know, it was a good service, and my grandmother's pastor, <laughs> you know, he eulogized her, and, um, you know, it was good. It was good. You know, it was a celebration of her life. It was a celebration of, you know, of us, and it was beautiful. I mean, everybody, you know, was getting along. Everybody was happy to see each other. You know, and uh, and you know, um, it was you know, you had a paradigm shift, you know, and so, you know, to explain a little bit about my family. So, my grandmother, she was ninety five. She was, would have turned ninety six in August. So she was the baby of her brothers and sisters. And she was the last one. You know, the rest of them had already transitioned out, and she was the last one. And, you know, um, I had been disconnected from my family for a while. But last year, you know, we reconnected. You know, I put forth effort, reconnected with them, because there were a lot of things, you know, that were happening. And, you know, I didn't talk about you know, what happened last year, there were a number of things that I had to deal with. But um, one particular issue, which is what made me realize that I had to go back and reconnect and we needed to fix things, was, um, you know, it's only a handful of people, very few people, that knew what was going on with me. So basically... 
last year, you know, we were supposed to give our conference in D.C. over the weekend of October 17th and 18th. Yeah, that was that Saturday and Sunday, and I did a show that Sunday. And I remember saying on the show, telling you guys that the next Sunday I wouldn't have the show, and if I was feeling better, maybe the Sunday after that, but if not, you know, we weren't going to have a show. And I ended up not doing a show for a month. And the reason for that is because that Monday I was scheduled to have heart surgery. And so um, it was pretty much kind of like an emergency heart surgery because I had been after the doctors for a while telling them that something wasn't right. As a matter of fact, in May of 2014, I went to the emergency room, and I'm not one to go to the emergency room. You know, that's just not me. I'll go to immediate care or acute care, whatever you call it, and, um, you know, try to fix it up at home. And when it gets to the point where I feel that, you know, yeah, I better get up and go and see someone. And so May of 2014, they were like, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, it was um, costochondritis, which is, you know, inflammation within your body. So for those that don't know, I have lupus, um, you know, underactive thyroid, which is hypothyroid, fibromyalgia, and a number of other autoimmune um, diseases. And this runs in my family. So, you know, you know, we have people that have underactive, overactive thyroids, you know, the goiters, and you know, just a number of things. But, um, you know, they sent me home. They kind of blew me off. And so last year, you know, I have two rheumatologists, you know, two different hospital systems, you know, and it's kind of like a check and balances thing that I'm doing there um, because one hospital is 10, 15 minutes away from me and the other one is an hour. So regardless of which hospital I go to, they have all of my information on file, you know, which is why I did that. And so my rheumatologist heard something when, you know, I went in for a checkup. And so, you know, I went to see, you know, a couple of specialists. I went to see a pulmonologist because they thought it was um, pulmonary hypertension, you know, and I have hypertension too, high blood pressure. And so, you know, we did some tests, ruled that out, you know, and then, you know, she sent me to see a cardiologist, but not just a general cardiologist. Um, It was an electrophysiologist, you know, a very specialized one. And so we went through all the tests, and it confirmed the arrhythmia, which which basically means I had extra heartbeats. And, you know, starting to confirm, you know, what I had been telling them all along. And so, you know, my father, you know, who was a police officer, um, he died from heart disease. And heart, you know, my mother has, you know, uh, high blood pressure. Um, she's had some, you know, uh, issues, you know, as well. And so, you know, I was telling them to take all that into consideration. But initially, even after they saw, you know, the EKG, the MRIs, all of these different tests, the cardiologist was like, nah, you know, we know your family history, but, you know, we think you'll be okay, nothing to worry about, you can go on home. And so me being me, (laughs) um, and I got that honestly, you know, we were laughing about my grandmother and, you know, how she was a warrior. That was a soldier right there, right? 
And so I guess some of this, honestly, and, you know, one of the reasons why I give my doctors pushback is because, you know, I've diagnosed all of my health issues, and I've pretty much had to do backflips through their, you know, offices to get them to do the testing, only to prove, you know, what I had been saying. And so, you know, um, you know, basically, you know, I felt like he was just kind of blowing me off and sending me away. But because I was very insistent and I was like, no, this is not what we're getting ready to do today. You're going to listen to me. You're going to do what I tell you to do. And I'm the boss. I have the insurance. You work for me. Let's figure this out. So I believe he was humoring me, and he gave me a 24-hour monitor, you know, a Holter monitor, and, you know, he was even saying that he didn't think anything was going to come of it. He was like, come back next week and get fitted. And I was like, no, I'm here today. Let's do it now. And so, you know, um, you know, I got fitted. Worked for 24 hours, you know, did my normal activity and took it back in a couple of days. And I was supposed to call back. But, again, life happened. Now, mind you, this was the latter part of August, beginning of September. And, you know, I forgot about it, you know, and called back two weeks later and spoke with his um, PA. And she was like, we need to get you scheduled for surgery ASAP. And, you know, and basically, yet again, I was right about what was happening. So fast forward, you know, I ended up having that surgery on Monday, October 19th. And just to kind of give you a brief description of, you know, what was happening there, you know, they have you laying out on this stainless steel table. And, you know, nothing is under you, you know, so skin contact was cold. And so they were putting these warm blankets on me. But anyway, so you laid out on the table, and underneath is a giant magnet because I wouldn't let them crack my chest. And I'm like, no, we got to figure out something else. And so they went through the femoral artery. And so what happens is, you know, it's a catheter that they feed through your femoral artery, you know, and that's what the magnet is there for. It guides the catheter. Now, mind you, you know, I had to be awake for this whole operation, and there were nothing but computer monitors around it. You know, you had the students and the observation deck, and I'm looking around, and finally I told them to put, you know, a towel on my eyes because I didn't want to see it. But yet, you know, I had to communicate with them. And so what was interesting is I felt when the catheter was moving and when they started um, burning different sections of my heart, you know, I felt it. And they were like, oh, are you in pain? I'm like, no, it's just uncomfortable. But I was also able to smell it and taste it. And so, you know, um, it was very interesting. Like I said, I had to be awake and they kept trying to pump me with something like, I'm fine. I'm like, I'm just uncomfortable. And so at the end of the surgery, you know, when they pull the catheter out, basically they have to put all, you know, basically the other doctor was two doctors, and he had to put his entire body weight um, 
pressing down on my abdomen to make sure because, you know, with your femoral artery, you know, if it starts shooting out blood, it takes about two minutes and you've bled out. It only takes two minutes to die. And so, you know, it was real interesting um, how all of that came about. But um, we've been doing pretty good since then. Um, You know, it took a while to heal up, you know, and I didn't really want to talk about any of that in uh, But, you know, I decided to share because, you know, that is what caused a personal paradigm shift for me. And I was like, okay, I got to go back and do some of this stuff again, you know, new beginnings. And so, you know, again, you know, cultivating and, you know, um, you know, my relationship, you know, with my family and a couple of other people in my life. And so, you know, starting all over again. And so, you know, December, my last show was December 20th. And, you know, something that happened around that time too. And, you know, what was interesting is, you know, my sister was like, you know, you got to call grandma. And we called her mama. So, you know, you got to call mama up and see how she's doing. And, you know, I was talking with her, and, you know, it was a great conversation. And she was like, you got to get down here to Atlanta. And, you know, I was planning on going down there to see her. But, you know, a number of different things happened, and I wasn't able to do so. But I'm grateful that I had a chance to, you know, talk with her. But, um, you know, it's, it's been a lot of new beginnings um, happening in my life. And so that's what I'm saying, you know, some things that are coming and, you know, I definitely will share them with you when I'm able to do so. But, you know, going back to what I was saying about, you know, um, the matriarch of the family passing away, you know, I was just sitting there and observing, you know, my mom and my aunts and my uncles. And, you know, there five uncles have, you know, transitioned out, you know, and so we had two of the boys. There's only two of the boys left, and they were there. And I was sitting there and just marveling, just watching them. You know, I come from a line of strong, strong people. Now, mind you, my grandmother and, you know, her siblings, they were born in early 1900s, and they were from Mississippi, and my my grandmother's mother was a slave. And, you know, her father, they were slaves, and they were freed, you know, emancipated. And, you know, it was so bad in Mississippi that even though my grandmother and her siblings were born free, you know, they were still being mistreated And, you know, you go back and you read some of the history about the Great Migration, you know, and I've talked about it a little bit on this show, but I think I'm going to have a couple of people on. So I'm going to be reaching out to more um, historians to come in and, you know, talk about these types of, you know, um, historical facts. And so they moved up here to Chicago. And one thing that I will say is that, We were never homeless. We never missed a meal. My grandmother made sure that her children were cared for. You know, they owned property in Mississippi as well as Chicago. 
And ironically, I live about five blocks away from where my um, mom and her siblings were raised. And, you know, it's just it's, it's such a rich history. My grandmother, you know, she grew up and lived through the Depression. She lived through Reconstruction. She lived through the Black Codes. She lived through Jim Crow. You know, she lived through, you know, this bullshit we're still dealing with now. And she was still, you know, a beacon of light, a beacon of strength for the family and telling us that it was going to be okay and that, you know, we need to work together and stick together as a family. And that was the beautiful thing about, you know, the service because we had people from all over. You know, we have relatives, again, in Georgia, Michigan, Mississippi. You know, we kind of spread out here. And, you know, you know, it was a lot of people, you know, they made it there as well as, you know, um, other people that lived in the city that, you know, know my family, you know, honorary relatives, <laughs> you know, they made it out, you know, to come and pay their respects and to, you know, say goodbye. And so what was interesting is, you know, I was talking to my mother and she said one of my aunts picked out um, a specific, you know, plot because it was under a big old oak shade tree. And that's one thing I do remember <laughs> about my grandmother. She's always got to go cool off in the shade. And I remember the house that we had in Chicago was actually a double lot. You know, she had 15 children. So, you know, they needed somewhere to run. And, you know, you just start thinking about, you know, the history. And it's just amazing, you know, an amazing woman. And, you know, we were very fortunate. But, again, you know, even though she's transitioned, you know, her influence lives on, you know, in all of us. And so it was a changing of the vanguard, if you will or the changing of the guard. So, again, my grandmother was the last one living from her brothers and sisters. So it reached even beyond her own children. So, you know, her nieces and nephews, and you know, they made it. And that was very, very important. Um, the children of my uncles that have passed away, one of the had children, um, they were there, you know, and uh, it was really good to see everybody. It really was, you know, and I had some of them fussing at me, saying, don't stay away so long. Come around more. And so, you know, I felt welcomed, um, all of that. And, you know, and it was very comforting because, you know, you know, everybody was holding each other up, and it was just, it was needed. And so our grandmother was able to bring us together, you know, one last time, right? And so it was just really interesting that we laid her to rest on Earth Day. And so, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was a good time. I had a couple of cousins that, you know, read some of their poetry, and it was beautiful, you know, and um, 
you know, really proud of them, really proud of my family because everybody was able to come together and, you know, work together. And so now, you know, with that particular paradigm shift, we have to move forward as a family. And so now, you know, my aunts, my mom, my uncles, now they are the new vanguard. And so, you know, again, new beginnings, you know, and, you know, our ancestors, you know, that have transitioned and left, you know, and again, you know, many of the people that listen to the show, you know, ironically, I have more believers and, you know, some people say they're not religious, they're spiritual and new agers, you know, they, you know, they listen to the show. So what I would say, you know, um, in a way that they could relate to is that, you know, those that have transitioned out, you know, um, for those that believe that there is an afterlife, you know, they they would like to believe that these people are still, you know, watching over us. And now they get a chance to sit back and to watch us grow and to watch us, you know, um, usher the family into, you know, uh, into a new dimension, you know, really. But, you know, it's it's just, it's amazing, absolutely amazing. And so for those that are non-believers that do not believe in an afterlife or anything like that, you know, basically, you know, we're going to take the lessons, you know, that we were taught and that we learned through our life, you know, from our parents, grandparents, um, other people, not necessarily just family, but, you know, the, the knowledge and the power and the guidance and the wisdom that they've imparted into us. We have to take that and, and, and use that information to guide and to support and encourage, you know, the, the younger ones. And, you know, this is something that I feel as though I've done all my life. You know, I have nieces and nephews, and I've always wanted to be a good example to them as well as some of my cousins. And so what was so interesting, and, you know, yeah, I've been talking about me and my family for 30 minutes, and for those that listen to the show, you know, I don't talk about this type of stuff. I don't really share a lot um, in this regard, but I just felt like, you know, I wanted to share with you today. And so uh, <laughs> it was interesting because one of my nieces, uh, and, you know, these are ones in Kentucky, like I said, we were, you know, from everywhere. And so she was like, yeah, I've been listening to your show. And I told my mama, which is my sister, about the show. And, like, Kevin has a talk show, and it's real. They talk about real stuff. <laughs> so it was just, you know, I was like, Outdone, I didn't realize that, you know, I knew one or two of them listened here and there, but, you know, she was like, yeah, you know, they're loving it, and I know I have some cousins that listen, and, you know, and it was just, you know, amazing, but what really floored me <laughs> is one of my aunts, um, you know, I gave her a hug. It was like, hey, how you doing? And, you know, these are the ones from Georgia, this particular aunt. And she was like, you know, I just want to let you know I hear you. 
And I looked at her and I smiled. And when she said that to me, she just kind of lit up. And, you know, she had this look on her face, this smile. And, you know, and it was genuine. And I was like, you know, tell me, you know, what are you hearing from me? And she says, I've been watching your videos. I've been listening to your show. And I've been keeping up with you. And she's like, I got you. I hear you. And I just started smiling. And so later on, you know, during the repass, you know, um, I saw her again and we started talking again. And she was talking about how she likes and she appreciates how I challenge people. And she would say that she, she hears me because, you know, sometimes when I get on this show, you know, sometimes I'll get to saying to you guys, I know you're listening, but are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you hearing what I'm not saying? Are you putting the pieces of the puzzle together? Because sometimes I can only give you so much, but I can't give you the rest. Sometimes for legal reasons, other times it's because I want you to think. Again, that's what we're here for. We are here to challenge you to think for yourself which is why I encourage you guys to go out and read and research, which is why I give you all book lists. You know, what's interesting is when I meet up with academics and I get to talking with them, one of the first things or two of the first things that I ask them for are syllabi and book lists um, because that's important to me. And, you know, I know some people laugh when I make references to Wikipedia, and I always say go to the bottom of the page and look up the links. You know, those are reference points, reference links. And what a lot of people have not realized or may not understand is that, you know, there are grants that are given to academic um, institutions as well as cultural institutions for them to go in and clean up Wikipedia and put accurate information and cite their sources. And so Wikipedia, you know, has gotten even stronger and, and you know, um, in, in the information that's disseminated from that particular site. And so, you know, again, there's money out there, you know, grants out there that, you know, institutions can apply for to go into Wikipedia and, and correct the information and to add on. You know, I know they did that with um, Spelman, Morehouse. They received some money. The Schomburg Center in New York, which is named after Arturo um, Schomburg, who was really good friends with Hubert Henry Harrison, for those that listen to the show, you know, um, I'm crazy about, you know, Mr. Harrison there. And so, you know, it's, it's just really interesting. And, you know, he helped, you know, Arturo to start that cultural center in New York, you know, because he, you know, wanted to make sure that the history was readily available there so that we would know where we came from and what they went through. And so, I was just, you know, I remember having conversations with my mom over the years um, about our family. And so she would tell me these stories. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm going to spend more time with my mom and, you know, get more information, you know, from my cousins and 
nieces and nephews that are out there. You know, what was interesting was the pastor that eulogized my grandmother, her pastor, um, you know, he was talking about that. He was like, go and, you know, find you some older women or older men, you know, that can sit down and talk to you and tell you some things and teach you some things. And you've heard me say that on a number of occasions on this show, that I think it's important that we engage, you know, older people to get information because, trust me, we don't know it all and we surely ain't did it all. You know, there's always room for growth. If you are around someone and they say they know all that they need to know, you need to get away from them because that's a fool. You should be learning something new every day. You are never too old to learn. And, you know, that's one of the things, you know, with this show, besides, you know, promoting, you know, research and definitely promoting literacy, this is why sometimes you'll see me put up the links for where you can go online and take free classes and, you know, just a number of things. You know, I know I've bought um, Groupon, you know, some classes for different people, and I need to do that for another nephew. I had to get my niece's email address for her um, for her son. And so, you know, new beginnings, new beginnings, new attitude, a new perception, you know, a new way of looking at things. And, you know, this is something that I've been doing, that I've been training myself to do. Um, in all honesty, you know, I've had to let a lot of stuff go and, you know, release a lot of things. And what's interesting is there are a couple of situations in my life right now, and, you know, what's interesting is part of me really wants to let it go. However, some people have to learn things the hard way, which is unfortunate. But, you know, again, it's the principle of the matter. But, you know, like I said, you know, my grandmother, she lived through the depression, you know, and what's interesting is it was a depression for white people. For us, <laughs> I, I don't even know what's worse than depression. It was just catastrophe because you have to remember, you know, we were emancipated, you know, in, in the late 1800s. And, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, it's only been 100 and, what, 52, 53 years? So we're going to say 150-plus years that, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And that's not a lot of time. It's a lot of time in in, in the fact that we don't have, have 150-year-old people living. But um, it's just interesting because, Again, you know, we've talked about on this show about the New Deal. And, you know, I still feel as though I didn't do it justice. And so, you know, I'm going to go back and revisit that. And I had a friend or a few people who actually told me how much they enjoyed some of the older shows that people may not have had the opportunity to listen to. And during that time, Blog Talk Radio had some issues, the sound quality wasn't the best, and you can find some of these shows on iTunes and Stitcher and 
Podbean and a number of other places. But I am going to go back to some of the older shows and redo them. I'm going to revisit those topics because, you know, I have that information and I can add more to it because that's what I've been doing. And so, you know, one of the things, well, two of the things that were part of the foundation or part of the premise as to why I created or, you know, I created this particular show with someone else. And one of the things that I would stress to her was, you know, this is a way that we can create our legacy. And, you know, that was one of the more important things for me because, again, you know, I've always tried to be a good influence on, you know, my cousins and my nieces and nephews, and that is extended to other people that I have adopted in as family. (laughs) And, um, you know, this was a way to get here and to create a legacy. But most importantly, I wanted to change the narrative, especially in the secular or the black secular community. And I achieved that. You know, that particular mission has been accomplished. And now that I know that that has been accomplished, now I can move on to other things that, you know, I want to achieve and, you know, build on. It's not letting go of, you know, this particular narrative. It's building it, you know, because there's scalability here, you know, and it's actually bi-directional scalability. It's very important because sometimes we do have to, you know, go back and look and reassess some things, right? And so, you know, this is very very important to me. And, you know, who would have thought? I truly never would have thought that in these five years of, you know, educating myself, I'll tell anyone, you know, in certain regards, I'm an autodidact. Um, And it's just, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And so, you know, when I talk about the ancestors and you know, not only, you know, family members that have passed on, but other historical people, you know, whether they're widely known or lesser known or whomever, you know, by them leaving, you know, information behind, like writing and, you know, the books and all of that, that that is what's happening. What they're doing is they're enlightening us, they're empowering us, and they want us to remember and to know and understand what they went through, you know, in the hopes that we wouldn't have to go through it. You know, it was interesting about what happened in Ferguson. And, you know, we were all on Twitter, and I was on Twitter and Facebook putting information out because it's like, you know, people needed to know what was happening, even though there was a blackout. And a lot of people did not realize is that in Ferguson, after they shot Michael Brown, they killed him, executed that young man, that they shut down the Internet, they shut down the landlines, all forms of communication just shut down. And they can do this in any city. And I need for you all to understand that. And in addition to shutting down 
um, the communication, um, the communications, they also declared a no-fly zone over Ferguson because they didn't want helicopters or drones or anything to capture what was happening. And like I said, you all know I am crazy about these babies, these young folks. They found a way to get that information out, you know, because, you know, we have some, you know, got some brilliant babies. And, you know, they found different ways to get the information out. And, again, you know, I have relatives that live in Ferguson, in the city surrounding Ferguson. So, you know, it's like I've just said to myself, you know, getting phone calls. I know my family is having a fit, you know, and like I said, I was getting some of the phone calls. And so I just had to put that information out there so people could see it. So anyway, you know, like I said, you know, the information and the knowledge and the power, you know, that they've equipped us with, you know, when need be, it shields and covers us. When need be, you know, it gives us the strength and courage to stand up and speak our truth and move on and move forward to admit when we're wrong, to, you know, open ourselves up. And sometimes you have to show that vulnerability, you know, and, you know, it's, it's you know, amazing, you know. And so, you know, I was having a conversation with a really good friend Friday night, and, you know, they were talking about, my progress with this show and you know they saw you know as they call it an amazing um growth um in regards to where I was and how I would speak and information that I was sharing 5 years ago in comparison to where we are now and you know that that's been what it was it's so interesting because um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, I, I haven't really been doing a lot of Facebooking or social media lately for a number of reasons, but um, I'm back, and I got a shitload of links to share with you guys, so I'm just telling you now, for those that are like, she just, yeah, I'm back. So <laughs> I'm getting ready to push a bunch of knowledge to you, but um, yeah. You know, some some really important things coming up. So, again, you know, thank you for listening. Um, and like I said, a couple of weeks ago I was, you know, in my news feed. And some these people, they were having a conversation. And this one young guy, you know, he was telling them that there was no such thing as black-on-black crime. And, you know, he was trying to remember what it was called. And he got the first part, he was like, this proximity. And he went dot, dot, dot. And, you know, I wanted to say something, but I didn't. But, you know, the correct term is proximity hypothesis. And, you know, the fact that I see, you know, the language changing. And, you know, these are young people, you know, so whether they listened to the show and got it from me or they read a link that I put out there or someone else is educating them and putting that information out there, whether they got it from me or somewhere else, it doesn't matter. The narrative is changing, and that makes me happy. 
So, again, like I said, it's a paradigm shift. It seems like more and more people are out here, and, you know, they're trying to move social justice forward, which is what, you know, what we've been doing. And, you know, I'm just proud to be a part of what's happening now with, you know, this human rights activism, you know, the grassroots activism, seeing these young people, and I've been saying from the very beginning, older folks, it's time to move out the way. Now, I'm not saying we're going to send you to Shady Pines. That's not what I'm saying because we need your encouragement. We need your support. But even those in my age range, we need to move aside a little bit and let these young people move forward and guide them and motivate them, support them, encourage them, and in many cases, fund them. Yes, take some money out of your pocket and help somebody else. You know, because what a lot of people don't seem to understand is that being an organizer, being an activist, you know, it's a thankless job. And we have people out here that are, you know, not able to pay their rent or their mortgage. You know, they're not eating. And it's just, you know, you see these people, they're out here marching on the front line. And, and it's important that we take care of them. And what's so interesting is, you know, many people tend to discard, you know, um, the older people or discard people that are out there fighting. And so, again, you know, just try to look at these things from a number of different perspectives. But, you know, to make a long story short, it's just I see the shifting, you know, in different communities, and I'm very proud of being a part of this. And, you know, again, we're in our infancy, and you've heard me talking about this. And, yeah, we're still in our infancy because we're still organizing because the only way we're really going to be able to push forth real, real change is we have to be organized and we have to start implementing, you know, a lot of this theory. So, you know, um, I have a newspaper that you all can subscribe to. It's called the Black Free Thinkers Praxis. And basically what praxis means is in action. So we have to go from theory to practicality. We have to act on these theories. And so what was interesting is President Obama made um, some comments about, you know, Black Lives Matter and other activists out here talking, uh, you know, basically out here and, you know, shutting down Trump and protesting and marching. And, you know, he basically was saying that it was more to it than just, you know, marching. And, you know, that's true. And this is one of the reasons why I say we have to go back. But when I say that's true, I'm not necessarily agreeing with the perception you know, that Barack Obama is probably looking at this from, you know, and I don't know what his perception, you know, necessarily is personally. One thing I do know is that he has to be very measured with some of it that he says. Why? 
You know exactly why. You see what's happening. They've been playing plantation politics with him from day one. And so, you know, but see, but that's what's happening now. You know, look at what's happening here in Chicago. And I must say, Black Lives Matter Chicago, Asada's Daughters, Black Youth Project, you know, the Chicago Light Brigade, Project NIA, um, you know, just a number of different groups here, you know, they've been doing a kick-ass job. We got rid of Anita Alvarez, almost got rid of Rahm Emanuel, but, you know, it was hard getting people to go out to vote during the runoff. And one of the things that, you know, I've talked about extensively on this show is the voting process and how it's important for you to know who your alderman is. It's important for you to know who your mayor, who your governor, your state legislators, because those are the ones, those are the people, and those are the laws that impact you on a daily basis. And, you know, these federal laws have an impact on you, but the state laws have, you know, is, is more direct. And so this is why I've been encouraging people, you know, don't wait until it's the presidential election. There are many, many more in between, you know, and this is how we have all the gridlock that we have now, um, what's happening with the Supreme Court justice nomination with the gridlock. So, you know, again, putting new information out there, you know, I feel as though it's new beginnings for all of us. And, you know, for a number of different, you know, um, reasons. And so um, it's important. I want you to continue paying attention. Pay attention to what's happening around you. Not only when you walk out the house, you should be very observant of what's going on around you, especially if you're an activist, you know, you're um, a public figure, all of that. And it's even more imperative now that you understand and that you pay attention to that because the political climate in this country right now is very dark, extremely dangerous. And so um, it's, it's a lot it's a lot happening, you know, and what's interesting is you have these media blackouts and there's a lot of information that isn't being shared. You know, and I'm going to post some articles a little bit later about some things that you all haven't heard about, about how, you know, activists are being attacked. And, you know, that's happening all over the place. I remember um, Black Friday here in Chicago, and, you know, they were protesting downtown Chicago. And so there were a number of different groups out there. Of course, the news focused on Jesse Jackson and Operation Push, and, you know, what was interesting is I talked about how I had seen some of the young people and some of the women being pushed around by, you know, um, members of this other organization. You know, these were men, and they just, wow, you know, they were pushing the women, and see with me, you know, I have to be very careful where I am and what I'm doing because, again, tear gas, pepper spray, I'm in a hospital for who knows how long. 
But, you know, what happened there is we saw what was going on. And I see you, caller. Give me a second here. And I saw what was happening. And I was disturbed, extremely disturbed. And I'm texting people, get over here. And, um, you know, that wasn't the first time that happened. And, you know, there have been some other incidents. And, guys, we need to protect these people. Because these organizers, open your eyes, these public figures, open your eyes and pay attention, especially when you have grown men pushing around women and children. And it is not a situation in which they feel that they're defending themselves. They're pushing these women and children around because they feel that this entire movement should be focused on black men and black men in their plight. And they're not really, (laughs) you know, they just have some biases. You know, you have some sexism, misogyny, and, and these are some of the same men that will push women around but will not fight another man, will not go toe-to-toe with another man. And it needs to be called out. It needs to be stopped. And so, you know, I'm just asking you guys to keep your eyes and ears open. If you see something like that, speak up, speak out, step in. Because, you know, we can't allow that to happen. You know, and I talked about this, you know, many, many years ago about how you have certain people, in particular men, who will sit back and watch these women build these movements, fund these movements, feed these movements, cultivate, nourish, and, you know, um, cultivate, nourish, you know, fund you know, these particular movements, and then when they see that it's a solid foundation or that a significant number of people are now kind of, uh, in, in, you know, agreeing in some respect or another, then they want to come in and take over. And this is what we're seeing. And so, you know, this is a new day. You know, during the black power civil rights movement, that is what happened. You had a lot of black women that were part of the feminist movement. You know, they were, you know, out there, you know, for those of you that don't know, go look up people like, you know, of course, Angela Davis. Look up Florence Kennedy. It was a number of them, people that you may not have even heard of, and they were instrumental but they were basically forced to make a choice between the feminist movement and the black power civil rights movement. And you're seeing a lot of that even to this day. You know, you hear me talking about the hotep, no taps, and, you know, they hate feminists. And what's so interesting is with those particular black nationalists, because, I mean, black nationalism as a whole in certain regards is not a bad thing, but with Certain groups, you know, is problematic because, again, you have the sexism, you know, and, and, and we call it white supremacy and blackface. And there's a reason why we call that, it, you know, call it that. 
because that's basically what it is. And I always tell you guys to follow the money. But, um, you know, it's just been real interesting. I'm going to pick you up, caller, in a couple of seconds here. But I definitely wanted to, you know, pay. And, yeah, I'm switching on you guys. You know, we're going to get back on that. But I definitely wanted to send my condolences out to Prince, his family, his friends, his fans. You know, I happened to be one. And what was interesting was at the repast, I was sitting there talking to some of my younger cousins, and they were saying that when they heard about it, all of them started thinking about me. My family knew I was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs for Prince, right? And, um, you know, it was was funny because, you know, I was on the highway rolling home for the funeral. And so my niece called me up, and she was like, hey, Kim, what you doing? I'm like, I'm on my way down here. And, you know, doing my normal gripes about, man, this is going to be hard. And, you know, you know, because, you don't know, it, it was just a tough situation to to um, to accept. And so she was like, well, I got some bad news for you. And I'm like, oh, Lord, what have they done? You know, because I'm thinking somebody in the family did something. And she was like, no, that's not it, Kim. And she was like, Prince died. And I was like, Prince who? You know, I'm like, was it Prince Charles? I don't know, Prince who? And she was like, Prince, Prince. Who's that? You're Prince. And I'm like, no. And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I said, they don't kill off everybody on the Internet. Bill Cosby been dead five times. Alfonso been Alfonso Ribeiro been dead since the Pepsi commercial. You know, you know these little rumors, right? And she was like, no, Kim, they announced it on TMZ and CNN. And for those of you that know me, if it's on TMZ, for the most part, I'm going to believe it. TMZ breaks news before everybody. And so, you know, we went back with this no, yes thing. And I was like, damn. And, you know, and I was an hour and a half away from my destination. And, you know, I was rolling. So I couldn't pull over because... You know, it was so much that I needed to do when I got home. And, um, you know, again, a true icon, a true legend, and that's why I put that video up of Prince, Michael Jackson, and James Brown. You know, James Brown, in my eyes, was never supposed to die. He was the first celebrity I ever cried for. Well, besides Minnie Ripperton, but that's another story. But anyway, my condolences to the fans, the family, and the friends. And um, there'll never be another him, never be another prince. And, you know, I'll continue to love him and his music and to honor him. You know, that's what we need to be doing, celebrating. You know, not only, you know, because, you know, my grandmother's funeral, it was a celebration. You know, we were smiling and happy to see each other, and it was good. It was like a release. You know, and she brought the family together one last time. So I'm going to, you know, we're going to move on. Let me pull this caller in. And let's see here. 281, may I ask who's calling? Yes, hello. Good morning. My name is Dr. Hawkins. I'm from Houston, Texas. I can barely hear you, dear. I'm sorry. Okay. Hopefully that's better. Uh, Much better. My name's Dr. My name's Dr. Hawkins. I'm from Houston, Texas. Good morning. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Hawkins, and thank you for calling in. You bet. 
You bet. You know, um, you highlighted a, a lot of really good points, uh, but there's one I want to um, sort of uh, key in on just in case mm-hmm. there are others out there who are thinking, well, you know, this is a bit over the top. I, I can assure okay. you uh, that you really do need to watch your surroundings as an activist, especially, and you're right, this political climate right now uh, is mm-hmm. is really, 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 um, let's just say murky, to say the least. And Yes, and, and that's what I said, dark and dangerous, yes. Yeah, I mean, good God, they're coming out of the blue now. <laughs> I mean, they're coming out of the woodworks, you know. Uh, the, the the You know, this whole white supremacist thing, I mean, for a while it was uh, uh, not politically correct. Now, all of a sudden, it is politically correct. Why? Because they were working behind the scenes for decades, fine-tuning mm-hmm. the system, while we were distracted with sports and and music and exactly. a whole bunch of other things, and, you know, and it's not to say that music's a bad thing. I, you know, I love music. In fact, uh, one of my organizations is called Hip Hop Therapeutics, where we blend hip hop and alternative medicine. So believe me, I get it. But what I'm saying is that they're using uh, the people that they control, the musicians, the artists the um, athletes, et cetera, uh, as a way to distract us away from the political arena, the real political arena. Now, I saw a poll not too long ago, I'd say roughly a month ago, uh, that stated 90% of the people in America hadn't even voted yet. So if that's true, then that shows that the people have lost complete faith in the system, but what are they doing about it? They're just sort of sitting around, and, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not doing anything. It's kind of like what you were saying with, um, with with the guys who sit back and they watch the women build certain uh, – uh, uh, I've seen it happen with markets, uh, whole yes. industries, in addition to movies. Mm-hmm. And then they come in after the work is done. It's kind of like that uh, little uh, story that you heard about in elementary of the hen that would go out and gather the corn. <laughs> Nobody wanted to help, you know, until the bread right. was made and ready to eat. And all of a sudden, everybody, it was that same scenario. And uh, uh, in short, I, I met a sister recently who actually owns a coal company. And I was okay. really shocked because I, she's the only person, the only black person in America that owns an entire coal company. I mean, the shipping yards, the coal mines, you name it. And she told oh, me yeah. that she's, and this sister is powerful. And she was basically saying the exact same thing you were. And she and I talked for about six hours, and she said, listen, Doc, I've never really experienced racism. You know what I mean? And she said, until I went to Kentucky recently, she said, I, I went to Kentucky uh, I'm there amongst a, much, a bunch of other um, leaders in the coal industry. All of them are white or Asian. And she said one of the guys got boisterous with her uh, to the point to where she had to call the police. And he's calling the nigger, exactly. he's pushing her around and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And none of the men there were actually took up for it. No one said a mumbling word or any of that thing. Right. So it's like, damn, you're, you're like in the middle here between – uh, two opposing forces, 
because the black men on exactly. you know as a whole we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, and then at the same time you got the white supremacists on the other side closing in, and mm-hmm. you know it's just a bad situation across the board. And so I said right. to the sister, I said, listen, you've experienced racism, white supremacy before. It's just that you were unaware of the situation. It's like the difference between right. conscious and unconscious perception. But now Very she good. gets it, and she's looking to surround herself with people who actually get it, not that's trying to leech off of her or hijack, you know, what she's built and tell her how to run her company. But she's looking for people who are really – down in the trenches, who understand the struggle and, more importantly, wants to actually do something about it and mobilize. So, yeah, I I feel what you're saying, and I agree. There's a lot of that going on. Exactly, exactly. And I see you, 347. Give me a few minutes here so I can address this, and we'll pull you into the conversation. So yeah, this, this is what I'm talking about when I say a paradigm shift, you know, new beginnings. Because, you know, a lot of people are, you know, um, disappointed in, in, in the voting process, in this so-called democracy, even though we live in a limited republic. But, you know, you hear people running around calling it a democracy. We've never been a true democracy, and we never will. But, you know, um, this process, this democratic process, um, there are a lot of people out here that, you know, simply do not vote for a number of different reasons. And so that's why I'm saying what we're seeing now in America with this political culture, this is very important. And like I said, I said something um, like the first or second show of this year, and I talked about how I was sitting at home and how I'm loving these news shows and these interviews, especially with rich white people. And I, I said something, and I think it flew over a lot of people's heads. And I said, you see these rich white people out here panicking and going through the entire seven stages of grief in a 10-minute interview. And and the thing is is that, you know, I know people are like, what is she talking about and why are they panicking? The problem is they've lost control. Like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson have lost control or so-called control of the black community. These wealthy white people have lost control of working class and poor whites. And basically they're having conniption fits because the working class and poor whites are now shifting their support to Donald Trump. These are called disaffected voters. And these are the same people that financed and supported the Republican Party. And so when I was talking about that article from the National Review and how I had to read it three times, because the first time I read it, I was like, no, I cannot believe my lying eyes. Second time I read it, I was a little offended, but I was like, damn. I had to read it a third time. And I was like, oh, I got to show everybody this. And I posted it. And Kevin Williamson wrote a scathing report for the National Review, which is an ultra-conservative magazine. And I've seen white people check other white people, but I've never seen a white person dress down another white person this way. And basically he was calling them, you know, um, addicts of many different forms. He was calling them lazy. He was saying that they were a drain on the system. And what was so interesting about that is 
these are the same things that we hear from the working class and poor whites when they're talking about black people in general. They would rather be poor and white than wealthy and black. And that's why I was talking about the book last year, and I advised people to go and read it. But go and read The Paradox of Class. You know, what I just described, that they would rather be poor and white than rich and black. That is that paradox. And they and people need to read up on it. But, see, these are disaffected voters. And this is why, you know, the rich white people have lost control of them. And so now they're trying to basically throw them under the bus and write them off. And what's happening with these disaffected voters is they feel ignored they feel ridiculed, they feel forgotten about. And I was talking about some of the inter- interviews that I saw on some of these news shows and how when you would hear these people describe why they are disenchanted and why they want to vote for Donald Trump, their stories were more visceral than abstract. So, you know, basically they would say that the system failed them and that they were lied to and that things have to change. And, you know, I know we've had some of these same stories on our side, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, I'm saying that we need to go back and pick up the Poor People's Campaign that Martin Luther King started. That's what he was killed for. He was assassinated because working class and poor whites started listening to him and wanting to work with him, and they were trying to bring us all together to move it forward. And so, you know, I'm saying all of that to say this. People need to pay attention because Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, and, you know, all of them are doing backflips for the black and Latino vote. The reason for that, they cannot win without us. And, you know, we have people out there, and they were saying that, you know, if it was Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, that they don't believe that Bernie Sanders would win. And my my response to that, yes, he would. There are really not enough white voters to put Donald Trump in office. And you have to go and you have to look at the math, you have to look at the numbers. But there are reasons why they're bending over backwards for us. Donald Trump, I did a show called The Prosperity Gospel of Donald Trump, and I've talked about it even more. And he has now connected with, you know, some of these megachurch pastors, whether they're black or white, and in the majority of these prosperity gospel congregations is, is mainly black and Latino people. And so, you know, Paula White has endorsed him. you got Joe Osteen who said that, you know, Donald Trump is a good guy. He didn't come out and outright endorse him. But you got Daryl Scott and a number of other pastors that have, you know, sizable congregations endorsing Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm telling people they need to pay attention to what's happening. And, you know, especially when I see people like um, Rush Limbaugh, having meltdowns, you know, about Donald Trump. And Rush Limbaugh is, in his own way, you know, a white prosperity gospel preacher. He's just talking to angry white people for the most part. And so it's it's just interesting because it also ties into, and it was interesting because I had this conversation with my mother on Saturday. No, 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 Friday, Friday evening. And I was talking about what was happening. And so my mom described it as, because I said on a show that the rich white people have to get, you know, they have to deal with this monster that they created called Donald Trump. Because he was fine when he was endorsing them and giving them money. 
And when they realized that they really had no control over him because he was smart, he would give them money, but yet he's refusing to take theirs because he does not want them to think as though they control him. So anyway, I was talking about the monsters and the monsterettes, and my mother described it as Frankenstein and how they built this particular Frankenstein. And once he had agency over himself, how he turned around and killed the very same people that created him. And so it's just beautiful, you know, when I have these conversations, and I'm like, we got to start looking at this, you know, from a number of different perspectives, but this is a new beginning. It's a paradigm shift happening in this country. And this is one of the reasons why you see these, you know, police officers and some of these working class and poor whites out here executing people of color because I need for everybody to understand it's not just black people, but Latino people and Native Americans. As a matter of fact, Native Americans have it even worse than black people in regards to, you know, um, you know, dealing with this, you know, wealth inequality, dealing with this racism, you know, uh, institutionalized racism and all of this, you know, and it's not an oppression Olympics, but, you know, I'm just trying to kind of put some things in perspective if we're going to be looking at raw numbers, and they're more disaffected than we are. But, you know, what's interesting is it's a new beginning, and, you know, I want people to go out and look up, you know, when they wanted to change the age for voters from 21 to 18, the people spoke, and that was changed through Congress in less than a year and a number of other issues. So we do have control. It's about people realizing and working together and understanding what's happening, the new dynamics in this country. We have had a major paradigm shift just by the fact that Donald Trump is on the ballot and being taken serious. That is a paradigm shift, not only in this country, but in particular, you know, the white America, white America as we know it, white America as they know it and as they see it. And all, a lot of this was ushered in through the Tea Party and the Libertarians in regards to their complaining about there not being any jobs for white men. They said that specifically, which is what has led to this White Lives Matter movement, a.k.a. Donald Trump. And so, you know, this is what I'm trying to get people to understand. You know, the reason why they're fighting back so hard is because they see it. They see what's happening, and they're losing control. You know, their population is dwindling, which is why they're so um, adamant about, you know, reproductive rights and trying to take them away. And, again, the only true white people in this country are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, Western Europeans, you know, Germany, England, you know, those people. And, it's just it's interesting because the other ones are honorary whites or ethnic whites. And if you go and you do your research, you'll see that I'm on point with this. And what's happening is they need a new social contract. They need a new racial contract. And this is why you see them, you know, one of the reasons why we're being executed in the streets because they're losing control and they're panicking. And, you know, I'm trying to get people to understand, you know, we have a lot more power than than people think that we do. Um, let me pull 347 in because they've been waiting for a minute, and I'm going to pull them into the conversation. But, um, 
You know, I just need people to pay attention. 347, may we ask who's calling? Hi, it's Jimmy Spice. How are you? Hey, Jimmy, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Excellent, excellent. Oh, anytime, anytime. Would you like to add something to the conversation? Yeah, I I find that the um, political process does seem to be a um, game controlled by um, extremely powerful financially rich uh, persons and that I can see why so many people are disillusioned by it because the choices of whom we vote for, for governor and president, etc., tend to be controlled by a small cadre of people. Therefore, how fair okay. is it when no matter who you vote for, the choices have been put there by um, the so-called establishment, which then leaves right. the question, well, why vote? Um, and I don't think this is anything new. If any leader right. starts to rise up, that is truly for the masses, they're either killed or shipped off to another region of the world or in some ways vilified. Um, so I, I personally, I don't know if the American voting process, I'm not talking the concept of voting and politics generally, but I don't know just if the American voting process is really going to make a drastic change for um, groups like black, Latino, et cetera, non-Native American, not in massive ways, possibly with small chicken bones of legislation to make the pain somewhat palatable. But in the big picture, it does seem to me that it's going to take um, disenfranchised groups coming together and forming their own banks and schools and media empires and voting for their own kings and queens and presidents, not necessarily to um, go in and talk to the establishment people, but to have um, representatives that we vote for that then form their own form of United Nations or uh, task force, um, because otherwise, you know, we'll continue going through this same process. I do, however, do not right. think that Native Americans have the same um, level of overall struggles as black people for several reasons. One is I have a lot of Native Americans. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but a, a, a decent amount. And they often look white. So what happens is until they tell me, they say, actually, Jimmy, I'm, I'm a Native American. I'm a Apache, I'm this, that. So they blend in very easily in city areas. But secondly... Um, many Native American tribes have treaties with the U.S. government. Of course, they're not, not all the aspects of the treaties are always upheld, but many of them have certain rights that they have to be tried by um, certain tribal um, courts. We don't. We get jacked up, that's it. But I also think that it would be much better for a group of black people to have a piece of land in America that we own, which is the case with some uh, native tribes, even though there's a lot of alcoholism and suicide rates are off the charts. Right. I think our people are just at the bottom across the board. And I don't know if much will change given the fact that most black people, just like most white people, most poor native Indians have been conditioned and may seem to be annoyed right now, 
But just like they were annoyed after September 11th and they were annoyed after or before the Civil War, we get right back into mm-hmm. this crab basket and let the slave system cook us. And, you know, and I understand where you're coming from that. And I'm not talking about the Native Americans that have um, assimilated, <laughs> if you will. I'm talking about more so the Native Americans that are still on the reservation. Because even though they have these treaties, you know, with the United States, they're not readily enforced. As a matter of fact, you had um, men going on these Indian reservations and raping these Indian women, and they have just been given the right to try these men, you know, in, in their particular, you know, court systems that they have there. But um, they've been out here, you know, executing Native Americans um, as well. And I'll post them because I know I post stuff all the time, but lately, the past few months, uh, not so much, but I'm going to start posting even more. But, you know, as I was saying, you know, this is a new beginning. You know, things are shifting. And you're correct. What they're going to do is try to give us a few scraps off the table hoping that that will satisfy us and, and and make us go away. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, when I see some of these people in particular, some of these prosperity gospel preachers, you know, endorsing Donald Trump, and I'm looking at their members and I'm like, you need to pay attention. They're going to get something. And then I talk about the faith-based initiatives. But going back to what you were saying, yes, we need to have people in place that we can write policy and put pressure on these politicians to get, you know, these policies changed because, you know, we have to, the, the current system, the system as it is currently, it has to be deconstructed and dismantled because this system has been set up so that it will not fail. Why? Because and, and because they don't want it to fail and they benefit from it. And so that's one of the issues that I have with some allies. When you sit there and you try to explain how this system works, you know, many of them, they do not understand the concept of white privilege, nor do they understand the concept of white supremacy. And I won't say that they don't understand it. I'll say they don't want to understand it. I think that's, you know, a little bit better. Um, But you're right, you know, about us coming together on this. And that's why I say that's one of the reasons why, you know, Dr. King was assassinated. Um, Dr. Annalise Fonza gave me a name of a book. It's in my living room, and I haven't uh, started on it yet. But, you know, it's talking about Martin Luther King, the Poor People's Campaign, and why he had to be assassinated. And if the author is still alive, I'm, I'm going to have them come on the show, you know, after I read the book because I just think it's important. But, yeah, you know, this is, you know, we we have to do something. We have to do something. And, you know, we're going to have to work together, period. That's That's what it all boils down to. And, you know, even with this political process, you know, with this particular election, this has been a civics lesson for this country because, you know, you have some people out here that say that they don't vote because their vote doesn't count. And I can see why they feel that way. And I think some other people are coming to that conclusion because even though during the primaries, you know, um, you know, candidate A may have received the majority of the, you know, population or the popular vote, 
Um, but the, the delegates may choose candidate B, even though candidate A gets 70% of the vote. The delegates choose, you know, candidate B. And then also, you know, again, going back to the electoral college, you have all of these different systems and mechanisms put in place. And what's so interesting about all of this is that, you know, we always talk about the shadow government, but there is a lot of truth to that. And, you know, the American public is, you know, being educated on a lot of this now. And this is why you see some of this anger and why you see, you know, some of these voters turning on the people that are in authority. That's basically what disaffected means, that the people have now, you know, they are dissatisfied with the authority figures and no no longer willing to accept the scraps that have been put aside and given to them. And what's so interesting about what's happening in this country is a lot of these, you know, well, the powers that be, okay, I'll put it that way, that control the money, that control everything, they've Stop giving a lot of money to these ethnic whites, which is why you see them out here rallying even more, especially with the Tea Partiers and the Libertarians. They want a new social racial contract. And, you know, it's just amazing because, you know, when I talk on this show about different things, I always talk about a hierarchy, which kind of ties into what you were saying, Jimmy, about how, you know, we're at the bottom of the rung and, you know, bottom of the ladder, you know, the last rung there. And and that's true. And, you know, we've talked about it on this show. About, and so when I was talking about the Native Americans, I was talking about the executions. But, yes, they do get better treatment than us in certain respects. As a matter of fact, they just received more reparations. But that's another show. But um, what's happening is, you know, anti-blackness oh, don't forget is an industry. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they, they will also open up casinos and things of that nature now. Actually, they've been doing it for the last 10 years. Well, as far as the casinos are concerned, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, they have investors. And you have a few of the, you know, Native Americans, indigenous people that, you know, are making money from that. But if you go behind those casinos and those boats and you go into the reservations, a lot of abject poverty. So that money is not being distributed evenly. You know, so yes, I'm not mistaken. You know, it's, it's only some tribes that are getting those types of deals. It's not all. There's exactly. one tribe that I exactly. looked into, and all their members get, I mean, something like fifty thousand dollars plus in some kind of funds, but it doesn't affect the other groups. But your position is somewhat, and the conclusion different from mine. I've kind of concluded that we have put enough investment into the American political and economic system, and now we should look internationally because America needs us more than we need America. No doubt about it. And that's the thing. One of the things that we should also consider uh, is that, you know, for a real movement to take place, we need some type of catalyst, right? And for me, for me, uh, and I, what I mean by catalyst is uh, for financial independence, so to speak. You know, to mm-hmm. I mean, every movement has to be funded. So what we need to do is uh, find a way to generate 
funding for our own endeavors, right? Because we all know, stated earlier, the political system is, is rigged and, and things of this nature. So what are we going to do about it? We need to fund our own movements. Right. And it's not all about money. But at the same time, to say, for example, we're experiencing a worldwide water crisis. Nobody's really talking mm-hmm. about that. So when the Flint, Michigan situation came to a head, that sort of woke a few people up out of their sleep, and that put right. uh, the pressure on mainstream media. So what did That's they do? True. You got guys like the USA Today that came out with an article recently stating that they found uh, 2,000 municipalities across the country that have toxic levels of lead in their water. And then another major news agency came out about a week ago stating that they found an additional 1,200. So here we're looking at Mm -hmm. 3,200 municipalities around this country with toxic levels of lead in the water. And you you just can't really look at that with any type of critical thinking and, and, and believe that that's, you know, a coincidence. So we have the same exactly. type of dilemma worldwide, and the water supply is being poisoned. you got to have that. The air is being poisoned. you got all these GMOs got to force down your throat, basically no labeling whatsoever. you got codex alimentaris, things of this nature. So what I'm saying is that if we don't have basic control over the dire necessities, food, water, and air, uh, no matter what we do, it's going to fall apart. So uh, thank goodness the people are starting to wake up and get more educated. But, again, we're going to need a catalyst. And that catalyst uh, for me and my organization has been water. Right? We're, we're working with other organizations and individuals, churches, et cetera, across uh, the African continent. We're working with different groups here uh, in America uh, to um, to bring clean water solutions, you know, with industrial water purifiers, uh, NASA filtration systems. Yes, that's right, NASA, the space agency. You know, their actual filters, uh, we bring those to the people to help with this problem. Uh, But, again, we're we're in a heck of a hole, and we're going to have to start talking solutions soon. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I agree with both of you all in regards to us, you know, creating, you know, our own solutions to this. Because, um, Jimmy, yeah, definitely, you know, and you and I, we've had this conversation before. And, yes, you know, we have the knowledge and we also have the money to kind of start our own, you know. You know, Black Wall Street, you know, what happened in Rosewood and Tulsa and a number of other um, you know, black communities that were independently wealthy and prospering. And what happens is, again, you have, you know, working class and poor whites that see the prosperity in those particular communities, and they come in and they destroy them. Um, in particular, um, you know, Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, the film Wilmington on Fire, Christopher Everett was the director, and he I had him on a show and he was talking about how they're still finding um, deeds that uh, to property that black people own, that the white people took over and just claimed it while they killed, you know, you know, a vast number of, you know, black people and chased the rest of them out of town. It was it was an insurrection because you know the black people were controlling their own local government, 
And, you know, they came in out of jealousy because they were not prospering. You know, they were at that point in time, you know, having a really hard time. And this has happened. The problem is we can build it up. We can do it again. We have to have the mechanisms in place to be able to defend it and to keep it because we've shown that we have the knowledge and the wealth to create, you know, our own prospering communities. You know, how do we protect it? And see, you know, even what happened in 2007 and 2008 when we had the mortgage crisis, you know, a lot of black and brown wealth was wiped out. And, you know, and again, this is wealth that they had built up over the generations, you know, because many of us, you know, invest in real estate. But, you know, I definitely, you know, agree with you guys. And one of the things that I feel that we could implement now is, you know, I believe in the community garden. You know, that's one of the things that I do believe in. But, you know, if we control our neighborhoods and, you know, get community gardens there, again, and especially in communities that are food deserts, so we'll have the produce and things that they need put together a cooperative can always, you know, find farmers, and especially if you have black farmers, or we can start a farm and, you know, put a cooperative together that people buy shares into it and we're able to be a little self-sufficient. And people that have businesses in our neighborhoods, you know, we can try to put together some policies that, you know, that they invest so much money in the community gardens with, you know, and they'll get fresh, you know, produce. And I mean, it's a number of things. We have to start somewhere. And, you know, what yeah. you were saying, that it had to be a catalyst or something to push this forward, we're starting to see it, but it is going to take something catastrophic, you know, to really push this forward even harder. And, you know, this is why, you know, with the position that we're in now, one of the reasons why I'm saying that it's a paradigm shift, it's a new beginning, because we've been studied. We've been studied all the way down to our toenails. They, you know, they pretty much know how we're going to react in certain situations, and this is why I'm saying we have to be tactical and we have to be strategic and we have to learn and we have to do things differently. You know, what did Einstein say, you know, doing the same things over and over and expecting a different result is insanity. And we've already realized and we've seen that, you know, the things that we've done in in the past, some of those things have worked, others have not. Because the position that we are currently in, black people in this country, we are actually worse off than our parents were during the civil rights and black power movement. How did that happen? You know, and we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to become self-sufficient. In many cases, you know, we can do that. We can do these things. It's about us coming together. And, and, you know, how do you, I guess I would ask you guys, you know, how do we do that? What do we need to do? to start, you know, galvanizing our communities, encouraging us to work together. And, you know, not everybody can, you know, run the show. You know, and so, you know, what do we do? How do we do? How do we get started? Well, well, I you know, I would start out by saying that, well, for myself, just say, for example, 
I let them shoot themselves in the foot. When when the government came out, when, uh, when the Flint water crisis scandal slash genocide, when it came to a head right. and got national attention, the government stepped up and said, hey, you know what, we're going to supply everybody with filters and we're going to make sure this problem is nipped in the bud right now. Well, when they came out with the filters and I saw that they were the Brita filters that you attached to your actual faucet, I knew they weren't going to work. And at that time, they brought in FEMA, and they were trying to keep um, other people away, or outsiders away from the residents of Flint, and uh, they were arresting people for even trying to bring in bottled water, right? black folks exactly. anyway, like guys like New Era Detroit. So I sat back and I let them shoot themselves in the foot because I knew the filters wouldn't work. They installed a few of the filters. They did absolutely no good. And uh, after that, uh, the people started demanding more answers. Well, after the government shot themselves in the foot a few times, the people realized, well, what the statesmen told us a year ago, they actually believe, and that is that no one is going to come here to help us. The statesmen did tell the citizens that Flint, by the way, they told them that literally no Mm -hmm. one's coming here to help you. And they they tried to marginalize them uh, to the point of basically suicide. So now people are seeing just how bad the problem is. They realize their very survival depends on organizing and mobilizing as well as speaking truth to power and uh, simply getting rid of that fear of the system. So they understand that now, and, and that's a crucial point for us because now we don't have to do so much convincing. I mean, some people right. still think we're in the information age, and that's fine, but but I know as a metaphysician that we are in the intuition age. We just moved out of the information age. We're now in the intuition age. And now people are really starting to use their intuition. So basically the only thing uh, that I would say uh, in terms of solution is that you find a solution. We say, for example, with us, with the water purification systems, industrial and otherwise, filters, the natural remedies, I mean, the whole host of things. You can check some of that information out on ancientwaterrestoration.com or hiphoptherapeutics.com, and you'll see where I'm coming from here. But uh, if you know what the problem is, actually invest in the solution, do your part to wake people up, and when they wake up, then you already have the solution, and you can just simply say, hey, look, just look over here. I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all, but look here. You know, Maybe we can organize around these principles here and join with others and um, and and do what we can to make a real difference beyond the talk and rhetoric. Very yeah, good. I, um, and Jimmy? Yes, it was a great brother. Thank you so much. And by the way, I have um, Jimmy Spice Curry brand and the Hotep uh, Kenyatta as a socially conscious end, but things have gotten so bad for our communities that I kind of have been bringing two sets of friends together, um, so then I call in um, putting my music production other name out there more, 
um, even though it'll lead to negative ramifications, I'm sure, in my music business. Um, I, I think that there is a local, regional, national, and international approach to the problem. And on the local level, um, subsistence farming, et cetera, so that we have some of our basic needs. I think where we have missed um, the opportunities is when it comes to the international level. And I think if we were to reach out to um, China and certain regions that tend not to be too friendly with um, the slave system, I think we have things to offer and negotiate with. I also think that America is a sinking ship. I think that the empire has been raped for as long as the wealthy have desired to, and now many of them are not even investing in American companies. And I think we're on that ship, and the, it's like the frog experiment. We're slowly burning and not realizing it. I think that China and India and those regions will be the powers um, in the not-too-distant future. And so that international outlook that I'm suggesting people consider may mean um, migration, and it may mean, if not migration, at least having alliances with business and production and political colleagues, but also having militaries in other nations that somehow maybe we have some uh, alliances, treaties with who would protect us because I think that our police forces and military here, not all members, mm -hmm. but for the most part, do not protect us. Um, but I also think that, sadly, we may be seeing the last of the typical um, black person that is proud of his or her culture. Um, it does seem that, for the most part, even though many of our people get angry, if you ask them about the culture of Haiti or Kennedy or the Yoruba, they know nothing. Um, so I don't, I don't think that the pain that white people and black people are going through is going to lead to a metamorphosis in intellectual and cultural thinking in the said individuals. I think instead the contrary is happening and groups are blaming each other. And even though they say, oh, the system, the system, the system, for example, you don't see in the media groups of you know, black folks and white folks that were once on opposing sides of the picket fence coming together. Um, right. The outlook, I don't think, is too good. But for those that um, picture, I think they'll survive, but not in the present form. I think if Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Marcus Garvey, you know, Frederick Douglass, if none of those folks could change the system drastically, I think the writing's on the wall. But I continue to invest a small amount in different, um, you know, political type cultural entities. But I think it's it's almost a wrap for America and for African Americans it's looking mighty bleak. And what's so interesting about what you just said there is before Martin Luther King was assassinated, he some of his thoughts and tactics were changing and he was talking about why we couldn't wait. Now, mind you, you know, this is mid-late 60s, and here we are in 2016 now. 
And this is one of the reasons why, you know, sometimes I'm really hard on progressive liberals, white progressive liberals, because I feel as though they have hampered a lot of our progress, you know, by telling us this is not the right time or don't do that or why do you have to do it this way. And that's one of the reasons why I was talking about, you know, some of the white allies. They they believe that they're white allies, but they don't know how to be an ally because they continue to center themselves. But um, in regards to what you were saying about some of these other countries like India and China and, you know, different parts of Africa, because Africa is a continent, but different countries within there. And that's what's happening with the TPP. And this is why, you know, I tell people when, you know, we're going to have to start thinking on a more macro level and also um, on a more global level. And, you know, I agree with you. You know, the ship is sinking. And what's interesting is, yes, they're not investing in a lot of American businesses. They're investing in businesses overseas. But while that is happening, they're also, you know, depressing, you know, the wages on purpose. And so, you know, some people would say splintering the labor because there is no way Americans can truly compete with people in China and India and other places. You know, we cannot compete with people that are making 50 cents an hour, some people that are making $2 a week. How? We can't. And so this is why I'm saying, you know, right now I just believe time is of the essence and we it, it has to change now. We need action now. And, you know, we're in the middle of this, you know, of this election season. And, you know, this whole thing is just mind-boggling. But, yeah, we're in a paradigm shift and new beginnings, you know, new ways of looking at things. And what was interesting about Dr. Hawkins there, and one of the first things I learned in the military is you can control a country if you control their oil and their water. That's one of the first things that they teach you when you take the tactical courses, and that is true. And if people have been paying attention over the past week or two, Um, President Obama had meetings um, over in Saudi Arabia because of what's happening with the situation with the oil. And so people need to pay attention to exactly what you were saying about the water as well, especially in California. California is in trouble. And you have companies like Nestle, you know, controlling all of the water. And what's interesting is they're trying to expand from California to Arizona. And they're fighting. And, you know, just the whole thing, you know, when um, Jimmy was talking about the treaties that the, you know, um, Native Americans have with America, you know, what we saw happening up um, when they took over that government agency, it was because they wanted to encroach on Native American land. And this has been happening, you know, not only in um, Oregon and, you know, Arizona, but all throughout this country even though Native Americans may, quote-unquote, own that land or what have you, um, Americans, you know, white Americans in particular, don't pay any attention to that. They don't care. So they're taking their water. They're taking their land. They're setting, you know, the situation up where these people will not be able to, you know, take care of themselves, will have no autonomy, no agency. And it's not just Native Americans. I mean, look at what's happening in, you know, black and Latino communities um, as well, primarily, you know, because 
you know, what's happening is, you know, they purposefully concentrate us in certain areas. And I've talked about urban planning and and how we are, um, how the system has been designed to put us in certain areas, how the FHA um, in regards to in, in conjunction with the New Deal how, you know, people were being directed to only live in certain areas. There is a reason why it's called the inner city, because we are in the inner city, and I call it black and Latino reservations because that's basically what they are. We're surrounded by wealthy or rich white enclaves. That's on purpose, inner city, in the middle. There's a reason for that. And, you know, people, as you both have said, you know, they're starting to wake up. And that's great, but that's why it takes, you know, others of us, you know, everybody has a role to play, but to educate people, but most importantly, you know, to let people know how powerful they are, because I agree, um, Doc, you know, about what happened in Flint, Michigan. They kept being told that, you know, no one is going to come, no one is going to help them, nobody is going to believe them, you know, the same tactics that an abuser used with, you know, their victims. And, you know, Flint, Michigan wasn't the only one. In Steubenville, Ohio, you know, um, they their situation was even more dire than Flint. And then it started coming out about what was happening all over the country in regards to the water. With Ferguson, when, they, when we started talking about the municipalities and how, you know, basically it's expensive to be poor. Don't get in trouble. You get a traffic ticket. They double it in 30 days. In some places, if you don't pay it, you may have a warrant out for your arrest. You can't miss work, but if you get arrested, not only will you miss work, you may lose your job. In addition to that, they may take the little car you have, you know, and you and who. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of things happening, and this is why I say we need to do something different. We need to look at this, you know, in, in a more tactical and strategic way and move forward. And and not ask for our rights, demand them. They're not going to give them to you without a demand. And so, you know, what's interesting is, is that, like I said, people are waking up, um, you know, the information and technology that we have out here. You know, we're able to share stories and relate to one another and, and um, disseminate information more readily and, you know, more quickly. And... Change is needed. Change is needed, and we need to do it now. So, yeah, it is going to take something cataclysmic to happen in order to really galvanize the people out in, you know, major masses. But in the meantime, those of us that are out here on the front line or the back of the line or what have you, you know, we see what's happening. We, we know about what has happened before. And we need to start planning for it in one respect or another. So I believe that's where we are, organizers, activists, you know, public figures, whatever you may be, or just, you know, people that are enlightened in one respect or another. We're going to have to come together. And as I've stated so many times in the past, we need a think tank. And we need to start preparing for the inevitable because what we're seeing now with these working class and poor whites and how they're disenfranchised, they're disenchanted, they're disaffected, a number of things 
they are going to go for the easy targets, which are blacks and Latinos, and we're scapegoated all of the time. And because, you know, there is a lack of power, in some cases there is a lack of knowledge, we just take it. And now we're starting to fight back a little bit, a little bit at a time, but um, time is of the essence. We have to do something because I don't think we have too many more chances. And like you were saying, you know, different migrations, that's possible. You know, I read a story a couple of months ago about um, a black man that went to Canada and was, you know, um, basically asking for asylum because as a black man in America, he feels as though he's pretty much being hunted. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And I didn't keep up with the story, so I don't know if they gave him a Greyhound ticket back home or not. <laughs> but Well, beat him down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? And um, we got to do better. We got to do better. But what's so interesting is, is that you know we've been told you know there's nothing you can do. Nobody's going to believe you. There is no one that can help you. That we are believing that, and we don't realize the power that we do have, and we have to find a way to harness that power and use it so that you know, we can help each other as well as other people. And so, you know, we have the conversation going on. I mean, in some cases we're implementing other things, but, you know, we got to do something. And I'm just hoping that, especially with what's happening now in this country, I hope this is a real wake-up call to people, but not only, you know, the disaffected, working class whites and poor whites, but also in the black community. Because um, Caleb, Caleb from New York, he called in and he was talking about how many of us have become comfortable in our oppression. And, you know, I've had conversations like that with other people. And you know, that's something that we really do need to take a look at because besides being comfortable in our oppression, you know, you also have the depression that goes along with that in which we feel as though nobody cares. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, white people are starting to have some of those same feelings. And, again, you know, we're going to have to have some really hard conversations with this country. But anyway, we're down to the last 90 seconds of the show, and I want to thank Dr. Hawkins and Jimmy, you know, for calling into the show, also known as Hotep Kenyatta. And, you know, again, you know, this is, you know, only one show that I'm going to do on paradigm shifts. You know, today is new beginnings. And, you know, we're going to be talking about a number of different things, you know, in the future. You know, it won't be a paradigm shift, too, next week. Um, I think I'm going to talk about social contracts, racial contracts next week, next Sunday. If not, we'll figure it out. But, guys, like I said, great, great, great information. I thank you guys for calling in and giving your information. Um, if, you know, can you both leave us with one thought? So, Dr. Hawkins, the one thing you would like to leave with the audience is what? Well, Literally, your ability to organize 
with other like-minded people is imperative right now more than any other time in history. And look, it's like this. I'll just put it as bluntly as I can. Educate yourself and your children, or you may as well brush them over with with A1 steak sauce because they are literally food for this system. So education is paramount. I don't mean indoctrination. I mean education. Um, right. So organize and mobilize, my people. Excellent. And, yeah. Jimmy, what's the one thing uh, you would like to leave with the people? Finance and economic empowerment. If concerned whites formed their economic currency, we formed ours, Native Indians formed theirs, Latinos formed theirs, LGBT formed theirs, and then we come together and say, okay, you know, let's do business. I don't think we really need their system, and let's negotiate with international governments and corporations and and not depend on USDF currency because that's at the core of what keeps us enslaved. Great points, both of you, and you're right. You're right. The one thing that I would, you know, like to leave um, with the audience today is, again, new beginnings, new beginnings. We have to start looking at things differently. We have to start reacting differently. We are going to have to work together and strategize, you know, new tactics, you know, new beginnings, you know, just go back and look at the history and read and and see why, you know, certain things have failed. There's a reason why Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are doing well. And and because people again are have lost faith in the authority systems and the authority figures that we have in place. There's a reason for it. And it's not necessarily because of economics. And so because I know a lot of people are going to say, well, it's because of the money. Not necessarily. That's a part of it. That is a factor. But that's not really what it is. So I want you guys to go out. I want you to think about that. Guys, thank you. I will see you guys next Sunday. 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. Not sure what I'm going to talk about, but whatever it will be, it will be good. And I thank Dr. Hawkins and I thank Jimmy for calling in. Hey, you guys, love you very much. You know, my family that listens to the show, love you. My one aunt who says she hears me, thank you. I didn't even know that my family was keeping up with me like that. And, you know, she was talking about some of the work that we've done. And I just want to let my, you know, my Auntie Evelyn know, love you. And, you know, what you said to me, you know, that Friday evening, you know, um, it touched me. And I'm just really touched and grateful to know that my family is behind me and they're listening and they're seeing, but not only are they just listening and looking, they're hearing me and they're encouraging me. And so I'm loving this. So, all right, everybody, you all have a great Sunday, what's left of it, and much love. Talk to you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Dr. Hawkins and Jimmy, thank you so much. I appreciate you.